Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. So I think one way to address a lot of these, a lot of these issues is to make you know, interpreter services a part, of, a part of the way we, you know, we reimburse for these, these services. I'm your host, Alan Weil. As we discussed in a recent episode, in the first few months after COVID-19 hit us, about 30% of healthcare visits moved to being conducted remotely using what many refer to as telemedicine. Now, a lot of people think that this shift to telemedicine is a permanent change. It can meet the needs of providers and of patients very effectively. But it turns out telemedicine does not meet everyone's needs, and it doesn't meet them all equally. The possibility that the growth in telemedicine might actually contribute to disparities in healthcare access, that's the topic of our discussion today. On today's episode of A Health Policy, I'm joined by Dr. Jorge Rodriguez, an instructor in medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Rodriguez and colleagues published a paper in the March 2021 edition of Health Affairs. That paper talked about telehealth use among California patients with limited English proficiency. Now, their data predates the COVID pandemic which is in some ways a benefit because their research gives us important insight into how effectively telemedicine was meeting people's needs before and is likely to meet people's needs as the pandemic unwinds. Dr. Rodriguez, welcome to the program. Hey, Alan. Thank you for having me. Excited to uh, share our findings. Yeah, I'm excited to have you talk about them. So start off with a topic and a concept that maybe not everyone is so familiar with, uh, it makes some intuitive sense, but when we say someone has limited English proficiency, what does that mean? Yeah, it's a great question. There's there's sort of a, a few different ways to to define it. There's sort of like more formal testing around how you define limited English proficiency uh, on one spectrum. There's on the other side of the spectrum, which we sometimes use on you looking at electronic healthcare record data, which is folks who just you know list as uh, a non English language as the preferred language. And then there's in, in the usual case in a lot of these kind of self-reported studies is those who report speaking English not well or not at all or less than very well is sort of the kind of classic when you look at like the census data or in our paper, that's sort of how we how we defined uh, limited English uh, proficiency. And how prevalent is it to uh, have a family or a person who falls into one of those definitions? Yeah, it's actually fairly prevalent. Uh, LEP, LEP people account for about uh, 8.5, 8.6% of the U.S. population, which is about 25.6 million people in the U.S. Uh, and that, you know, given the way that the census works, it's probably a little bit of, a, of an undercount, but it, it's, uh, it, it's certainly a, a good chunk of the population. Yeah, that's a lot of people, and particularly concentrated in certain areas. Your data came from California. We think of that as a state with a high immigrant population. Um, do we have a sense of the prevalence of limited English proficiency in California? Yeah. It's, in, in fact, it is the, the state with the largest LEP population. Around uh, six to seven million people in California are limited English uh, proficient, which is, which is part of our why, why we were interested in, in this study specifically looking at, at California, just because it gave us a good, a good population to take a look at how limited English proficient patients were doing in terms of um, their, their telehealth and telemedicine access. Yeah, it sounds like if you want to deliver care in California, you need to be quite familiar with this and and how to respond to it. Uh, you also had a nice data set with the California interview Health Interview Survey that uh, doesn't exist in every state. So you're looking at telehealth use. Um, why don't you talk about that side of the equation? You've talked about uh, LEP. What does it mean to be a telehealth user? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So telehealth is is a very broad term and sometimes used interchangeably with telemedicine, which can get extra confusing. So I think in, in our context, we were really relying on kind of like patients' uh, self-reported kind of telemedicine use. And in our case, we really focused on a question that the patients received, uh, whether they had received care through video or telephone conversation rather than an office visit. And so it made it seem like it was sort of like kind of the synchronous version of telemedicine, which I think is the one that folks mostly connect with. There are other forms of telemedicine. Some people, you know, consider things like, you know, secure messaging over a patient portal or remote monitoring with like a blood pressure cuff as forms of telemedicine. That's not really what we looked at in this study, but generally it can be a fairly broad topic. I think most recently in our study and also in the context of you know, what happened uh, during, the, during the pandemic, it's been, it's been really focused on kind of these, these synchronous interactions where you're having kind of real, real-time interactions, much, much like we're having right now, just in a kind of a, a clinical context. Oh, you mean we're not in the same room together? Uh, that's right. <laughs> not, yeah, exactly. So uh, this is basically, I think, to to a layperson, might be a doctor's visit, but it's happening uh, electronically, and and in order for that to work, you've got to be able to communicate. And I'd say at the top level, the notion that uh, people with lim- limited English proficiency might have some barriers to access probably isn't terribly surprising. But when you dig into the data, you do find some pretty interesting relationships. So uh, walk us through some of the key findings about rates of, of telehealth use, and, and particularly let's get into some of the other factors involved in whether or not uh, people are using this modality. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think that language is certainly one piece, and I'll definitely touch upon that first. You know, in, in, our, in our findings, when we just looked at sort of the raw comparison of limited English proficiency and telemedicine use, we found that patients who had limited English proficiency had a lower rate of telehealth use. It was about 4.8% as compared to 12, uh, 12.3% in our English proficient populations. Um, and then, as you mentioned, as we sort of started, you know, we, as any good, uh, any good researcher, we wanted to control for other factors that might be contributing to this. Even after we, con- we controlled for those findings, uh, limited English proficient patients were still about like 40 to 50% less likely to use telehealth, which is, which is also consistent with some of the findings that we've, that we've seen during the, during the pandemic uh, as well. So we, we sort of saw fairly significant gaps in their, in their access to these, to these tools, which, is, which, which we can talk about later, but it's not completely surprising given, given other findings in other kind of digital health or health IT uh, contexts. Yeah, so let's dive into some of those because I think it is important to understand that there's this, an independent effect for having limited English, uh, but it's also related to other characteristics, traits uh, that people may have. So walk us through a few of those findings. Yeah, so I think, you know, and thinking about, about this in terms of access to health, telehealth, the way I like to think about it is sort of like, you know, sort of access to the internet and devices is sort of like one key piece, then kind of having the like digital literacy and health literacy to, to, to engage with the tools. And, and then there, there's a bunch of other factors that, that come into play, including health insurance, uh, your health status, all these things kind of come into play. So I think the things I'll highlight from our study that one, we were uh, in a smaller sample of, of our of our data able to control for internet access. So one of the when we initially ran the data across all uh, all four years, one of the key things that we noticed was like, well, you know, how does this how is internet access playing playing a role here? In but even when we controlled for internet access, we still had lower use of uh, telehealth across um, LEP populations. Other factors that were sort of independently associated with telehealth use, we found that 
just just the fact of having lower internet use in general was associated with lower telehealth use, having being uninsured or having uh, Medicaid was associated with lower telehealth use, and living in a non-metropolitan or rural area was associated with lower telehealth use, um, which is again again sort of consistent with with other findings and just reflective of the work that we need that we need to do. Right. It's, so it's consistent in the sense that these are factors that we find, uh, regardless of language use, that, that may be a barrier. Um, can you talk for a minute about the findings with respect to race? Yeah. So here we found that actually uh, uh, Asian patients had a lower, uh, lower likelihood of using compared to white patients, but we actually didn't find differences across Black or Hispanic uh, or Latinx populations, which was a little bit, a little bit of a a little bit of a, of a surprise uh, here. We thought we might find differences as compared to, to white patients, but we didn't. We didn't. We didn't find it uh, in this case. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I'm glad you uh, d- dug into the data to to get that finding. So let's talk about what kinds of provider relationships may be uh, involved here. You you also had findings with respect to whether or not someone had a primary care provider. That that seems important. Yeah, so we, we use this concept of having sort of a usual source of care, which was kind of our, our sort of proxy for having a primary care provider. Um, and we found that that was a really important part of being able to use uh, telehealth. And the, our, our thought process there was that oftentimes telehealth may be used, especially sort of in more rural areas for specialty care access. But having that initial contact with your primary care provider really kind of serves as kind of like your initial touch point that you can then get referred out to all the different providers. Um, and so that was sort of an, an important piece of if you didn't have a primary care provider, you might not be able to connect with a lot of the other you know, providers that might have, uh, might have telehealth. That was one component. The, the other component to this was really around thinking around, you know, who, who are the primary care providers that, that are there? And, and is the clinic that you're going to, oftentimes, for example, limited English proficient patients may go to clinics that just don't have the resources to build up a telehealth infrastructure, right? And, and that, that can be a challenge because I think on the one hand, we often talk about like the patient facing side, like, well, the patients need to have like internet and devices and be interested in all these pieces. But there's also the kind of the, the clinic and clinician facing piece of this, which is really does the, does the clinic have kind of the infrastructure? Do they have the, the video cameras, the, the internet? Do they have the, the resources to buy a telehealth platform and get, and get that going? And, and in, in this case, you know, do they have the resources to have staff to support patients who may be struggling to get on and, and, and connect them at, in real time when you're trying to have a, you know, 15 to 20 minute visit and you have to spend the first, you know, five to 10 minutes just having someone just log on, that's obviously going to create a lot of challenges. Um, and, and so that was sort of an, an important piece. And I, and I think one way most recently on the policy side that this, it, it was, this was addressed or at least attempted to address was the FCC had this, this program during the pandemic where they invested two, around $200 million in telehealth infrastructure, where a lot of different clinics could apply and get these funds to try to do all these things, buy, you know, buy cameras, buy computers, purchase the platforms. So I think you know, th- those efforts can really contribute to addressing this gap that we found for limited proficient patients to make sure that the, place, the, primary care, the places that they're getting their primary care are, are equipped to you know, deliver uh, telehealth services. Well, we've covered some really interesting findings. I want to talk about the implications of this and how it plays out in your practice, and we'll do that uh, after a short break. Hi, I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Fabron Watts. Hey, Leslie, the Health Affairs Podcast Network is really growing. I know, Babe, our new podcast, Health Affairs This Week, places listeners at the center of health policy's proverbial water cooler. 
Each week, our trusted editors discuss this week's most pressing health policy news. This week catches you up on what's happening and what to expect in the field of health policy, all in 15 minutes or less. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen and join the fun. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Jorge Rodriguez about telehealth use among California patients who have limited English proficiency. Before the break, we were talking about the findings, but now I want to focus on the implications. And the first uh, item that comes to mind is something you reference in the paper, which is that under federal law, if a patient can't speak English, you're required to provide them with translation services. Uh, one would think that would overcome the barriers to use, whether in an in-person or an electronic setting. Uh, talk to me about the status of that provision and uh, how effective it is in assuring access for people who uh, maybe don't have English as their first language and don't feel like they can communicate in English uh, during a medical visit. Yeah, it's a, a great question. So the you know the provision is the the national standards for culturally and linguistically appropriate services, um, and this sort of as you said, you know, recommends having both interpretation services, which refers to kind of oral interaction or verbal interaction, and then translation services, which refers to um, text based uh, information in a patient in different languages. And so I think it's in in its ideal form, it sounds great, but in practice, it's a lot more challenging. I think part of the challenge comes from the fact that interpreter services are not reimbursed as other services are. And so you can imagine this already puts a little bit of a challenge on our, on our healthcare system to be able to provide these, uh, these resources to our patients, and you're not sort of getting reimbursed in their usual way. So I think w- one way to address a lot, of these, a lot of these issues is to sort of make in, you know, interpreter services a part of, a part of the way we, you know, we reimburse for these, these services, much like we do a lot of our other consultants and colleagues that we work with within the, the healthcare system. I think is is one of them. I think the other the other point to this is really kind of more explicitly connecting this to, you know, health IT or digital health or telemedicines. And in the current context, you know, it sort of says like you know when you're you know when you're providing care generally. But I think having given the fact that we've shift, shifted so much to um, a health IT kind of based healthcare system, it's really important for us to you know explicitly say that up, up front that you know providing interpreters as part of telehealth visits. Or, or any sort of digital health um, initiative is, is really kind of key and, and important. I think the, the other things I'll, I'll say around this component of making things, um, you know, linguistically appropriate or language accessible is really around the sort of the telehealth vendors. You know, a lot of our telehealth vendors may not necessarily have a lot of this, a lot of their platforms translated to other languages. And so you may buy a telehealth platform and you're like, great, I have my telehealth platform, it's all set up, and then find out that it's Oh, it's in, in English only. Like, oh, you could translate it, but you know, it's going to take all this stuff. So I think that's uh, there's sort of two prong there. One, the telehealth vendors could put, could uh, take a stronger role in providing that upfront. And two, at the institutional level, the institutions who are making these contracts and connecting with the vendors can ask those questions upfront. Like, you know, kind of ask questions that are relevant to linguistically appropriate care. Do you provide your platform in different languages? Have you tested it with folks who speak different languages? What, how do you integrate third parties like interpreters into it? Is it, is it kind of pretty easy? Is it going to be a big workaround? So these key questions up, up front really can make a big difference so that you're not sort of like after the fact, now you're in this big contract with a, with a vendor and you have to kind of like rework everything after you're like, oh no, it's such a headache. And so I think having those questions up front also could make a big, a big difference in kind of you know, making sure that our, our platforms are uh, linguistically um, uh, appropriate. Yeah, that last point you said about infrastructure, you know, 
before the break, you were talking about lower use is both on the patient side and on the provider side. So uh, in the paper, you talk about workflow and I'm envisioning, you know, a low resource doctor's office. It's finally got a telemedicine vendor, but then linking in the interpreter, which you don't need for every visit. uh, how, How do you do that from a workflow perspective? Right. Yeah, no, I think it's in the in the ideal world, and, and some places have gotten this going, you would have sort of like a one-click solution. That's what we're always looking for, a one-click solution. A one-click solution, we're able to like bring in an, an interpreter uh, fairly, fairly quickly. So that would be in the ideal world. I think in reality, there have been sort of all sorts of different workarounds where you call the interpreter first, and then the interpreter calls the patient, and then you're able to kind of, you know, have a, have a visit in that way. I've seen I've seen other sort of, you know, less less uh less tech you know less tech enabled versions where you sort of have a you know you have your computer and your telephoning on one end you have your phone on the other and you kind of put your phone up to the speaker of the compute and it's that that's sort of a big a big workaround but i think that the most you know the most important thing is really being able to to pull in the interpreter and some of this may may involve also working with some of the remote interpreter companies right they they're, they're sort of like not not every place is going to have local interpreters available you often rely on these kind of third party you know, remote interpreter services. And so kind of linking in with them is really sort of like an, in a, a technological, you know, challenge or technological piece of this that really sort of need, needs work to, to kind of, you know, figure out how to, how to do that. I mean, I think, I think more organizations are taking that into account and saying like, okay, I need, to, I need to know how to do this up front. So I'm not sort of like, you know, scratching my head later and all my patients and my clinicians and my clinical staff are coming to me and be like, wow, we, we just can't do this with this current workflow. Uh, you're a practicing physician at uh, Brigham and Women's. Uh, give us the doctor's eye view of how this actually works out in your day-to-day practice. Yeah, I think I'll, for me and, and for my for talking to my colleagues as well, you know what what happens is that we 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 get we get frustrated. You end up getting frustrated and and knowing seeing the, and seeing the numbers, seeing data like this, and be like, wow, there, there's this big gap. Uh, but knowing on the flip side that you have all these, you know, really, you know, kind of social factors that we, that come into play that are a little bit out, out of the clinician's hands at, you know, at the point of care. We've talked about, you know, digital access, digital literacy. Those are kind of more like social determinants of health level factors that really need kind of more, you know, policy level solutions to, to make a difference. So I think it, it, one, it creates a, a little bit of, um, of a challenge there. I think when you are able to get a patient onto a telemedicine visit, it, it works, out, works out quite well. Um, and anecdotally, I've, I've, um, I chatted with a colleague uh, who, uh, who through a telemedicine visit, noticed that a patient was not, had not arrived at their, at their appointment at their usual time, and was actually able to text the patient through the telemedicine platform. The patient got the text, they jump on the call, and the patient was like, you know what, I forgot that I had this appointment, but now we were able to, and so my colleague was able to manage their, you know, their diabetes, the hypertension. And in, you know, in, in a previous time when we were only relying on in-person visits, that would have, you know, been like a no-show or a missed appointment. But now you really had this benefit where you're really increasing increasing access to a lot of these patients. But that's sort of when you when you do it well, this ability to kind of bring patients in or engage patients a little bit easier really makes a big difference. And for for limited English proficient patients who we know have you know you know increased incidence of of, uh, of diabetes, worse health healthcare outcomes, worse utilization outcomes, it's sort of really really sort of a challenging place for them in the healthcare system. You know this. The whole point of this is that we feel like technology and telemedicine in general can really address these these disparities. And so, when it works, it's it's really good. When it when it you know doesn't work, and there's a lot of kind of technological challenges that we're dealing with right now, 
it can create a, a little bit of a challenge and and um, and kind of dissuade people from using things like you know like like telemedicine. So I said at the outset, the data you analyze predate COVID. Uh, we're all much more familiar with exposed to telemedicine now than we were then. Uh, imagine redoing this study in a couple of years and looking back. What what do you think are the key questions? What would you be looking for? And what do you see as the long term implications of of this uh, analysis? Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll mention a few things here. I think one is you know much like a, a lot of other themes in sort of COVID related outcomes. We knew these disparities were there before, right? That this a lot of the findings that we're having now, as it relates to telemedicine and um, and um, and racial ethnic minorities, uh, folks who are LEP, older patients, uh, they were there before. And, and not only just based on our study here, but even when you look back at things like patient portals and mobile mobile app access, you had many studies which were showing were telling us, hey, these patients are accessing these tools less. Um, and so what we're seeing down the pandemic is sort of just that being highlighted. And when, when, when there was this quick shift towards telemedicine, we we all, all of a sudden these, these just became you know exacerbated and just became really reflective. So I think just sort of reflecting on the fact that like these disparities were there before and they're they're not necessarily new is sort of one one thing we were trying to, we were trying to highlight here. I think you know going forward, you know I, I, I often say that part part of my goal is is sort of technology equity, right? Part of my goal is like, I want patients, all patients to have access to all the different technologies. But, but it's, it's only my goal in so far as it, as it gets me to health equity. That's like my ultimate goal, you know, kind of taking a, a quick, quick aside to a personal realm, being, being sort of Latinx myself, being an immigrant myself, being LEP at some point myself, you know, all these are very personal issues. And, and my goal is really to, you know, achieve health equity. And I really believe that technology can be a tool to do that. But I only care about you know technology equity in as far as it gets me to, to health uh, to health equity, and then the last thing I'll say is it's really around you know kind of connected to that is really as we're deploying all these all these telemedicine tools is really going back and saying like is this really a, you know getting us better quality of care is it really impacting cost you know how, how is it impacting patient safety like are we really de- delivering safe care across across these tools so asking these really kind of like end goal questions of what we're trying to get. I think I, I myself can sometimes get focused on like, uh, we got to get everyone access to this like new technology tool, but really going back and it's like, is it, is it really worth in, investing in this tool? Is it really getting us to where we want to go? And I think that's sort of some of the questions we'll have to answer uh, going forward. Well, that seems just right. I mean, this is a tool. It's a technology. We've all become dependent on it in a way we weren't before, but its ultimate goal, of course, is to get people the care they need. And if there are other ways to do it, or if the care they get when they use it is not as good, those are questions we've got to answer as well. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez, thank you for the paper, for the insights, uh, for the very clear explanation of your research. I look forward to you continuing this field and continuing to show us uh, a new findings as you uh, move forward. Um, But uh, for today, I'll say thank you for being my guest on A Health Policy. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.